singing this morning. Glory to God for the wonderful hymns that we just sang. The last two, written by Fanny Crosby, who spent the vast majority of her 95 years completely blind, and yet she saw her Savior through the blindness, through all of the difficulties that would have come growing up, especially in that age with all the, without all the modern technology that we have, and yet she loved the Lord with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I just can't help but think, as she wrote those words, to see her Savior, the first person that she wanted to see, having been blind all those years, was to see her Savior, first of all. Uh, what, a, what a joy and what a blessing it is to sing that song. John chapter number 12, John chapter number 12. And we came to this point in the message last week in our series through the book of John, and uh, I did not really completely finish chapter 11, but there is a setting and a background here that will take us back to John 11 and verse 55, and we see there, and the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we understand that the context is this Passover feast, and Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry, and this is the last Passover that he is going to celebrate with his disciples. And we know that leading up to this, there had been a resolution, there had been a prophecy, there had been a command, Caiaphas giving the prophecy that we talked about last week, though he gave it with ill will. He gave it with a motive of hatred and malice. Nevertheless, God in his providence overruling allowed Caiaphas to make a statement that would be prophetic of the death of Jesus Christ as a vicarious atonement for not just the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for the whole world. The religious leaders had made a resolution. They had made a command Verse 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. Going down to verse 56 of chapter 11, Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What thank ye that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. They had reached a boiling point in regards to Jesus. The healing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the timing of God and his providence and his redemption plan, this Passover feast coming near, the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ was there in Ephraim, having stepped away for a period of time to do what? To minister to his disciples, to minister to his apostles. We just read there in verse 54 that Jesus would no longer minister publicly, not out of fear, but in God's timing, knowing that the Passover was near, knowing that he needed to give some instruction to his disciples preparing them for this time that he knew would create great anxiety for them, great struggle. And we know that Jesus left and went up into Ephraim for this period of time. And again, it wasn't because 
Jesus was scared or afraid. There are times, there are times where we have to leave the place of persecution. Paul would do that as he preached on his missionary journeys. There would be some sort of uprising or antagonism or imprisonment or something that would happen in Paul's ministry. And he would leave that town and he would go on to another city and continue to preach the gospel. We've seen Jesus over and over and over again go back into Jerusalem, go back into the temple, go into the public square and continue to preach in spite of the persecution, in spite of the antagonism and the opposition. So I don't want us to think that Jesus was stepping away because there was fear. Again, this is part of God's perfect redemption plan. He was on God's timetable. There were instructions. There was some teaching that he wanted to give, no doubt, to his disciples. And we understand that there are times where we have to, in God's will, as we seek the Lord's face, as there is persecution, as there is resistance, there is a time where we have to step away. We have to find another route around the conflict. In a sense, the United States of America has benefited from believers who did that kind of thing. The pilgrims, in a sense, were separatists who left the persecution of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and then went to the Netherlands, and they were still finding their faith was compromised by the worldliness of the Dutch people, and so the separatist Puritans, the pilgrims, got on the boat, the Mayflower, and came across to what we now experienced the privilege and the benefit of living in the United States of America. That was 1620. They gave thanks to God. They praised the Lord, and they decided to establish as best they could a town, a city, that would give honor to the Lord, that would be led by biblical principles and instructed by biblical principles. They were not perfect. There's a lot of revisionist history that goes on about the pilgrims, but we have to remember that we have received some of that benefit of believers who faced persecution. They came, they came to a point where they decided they had to find another route. They had to go a different way. They had to step out and go a different path according to the Lord's leading. Here is Jesus on God's timetable. He has ministered. He has healed. He has preached. He has lived, obviously, a sinless, perfect life in love and compassion, declaring the truth in boldness and in courage, in bravery. And now he knows that going back to Jerusalem will probably, in, in God's providence and sovereignty, he knew for a fact that this was going to mean he would be arrested and crucified, put to death, die on the cross for our sins, pay the penalty for our sins, the sovereignty of God and the free will, the responsibility of man, laying down side by side as Caiaphas and those religious leaders sought to execute Christ. And as we went through the points last week and what they were trying to do, they were unwittingly, unknowingly working out the very perfect redemption plan of God. And yet God was allowing man to exercise his free will and his personal responsibility. Which again reminds us of the fact that 
Christ died for the whole world, as we looked at last week. He's the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2 and verse number 2. And reminded that each and every one of us has a personal responsibility to either to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And we'll see that again here in this passage in John chapter number 12. We'll see in the midst of rejection, in the midst of these religious leaders who were seeking to murder Christ, there will be believers. There will be some who will come to Christ in saving faith. We know from Matthew 26 and in Mark chapter 14 that this occasion, this event here in John 12 is recorded in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14 giving us parallel accounts, eyewitness accounts that will try to blend as best we can and compare Scripture with Scripture and interpret Scripture by Scripture that will help us in understanding what went on in this important event. It's not very much that we see John's gospel have the same event or story. He has the most unique material of all four of the gospels. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often have very much the same events, the same stories, different perspectives, sometimes giving a little different information, supplemental, not contradictory information, but supplemental information. And we'll see that here in John, where this event, this story is recorded along with Matthew in Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13, and in Mark 14, verses 3 through 9. And again, we'll see supplemental not complementary, or excuse me, not contradictory. We'll see complementary or supplementary information, and we will see these parallel accounts, and it will help us in interpreting what happens here in this event, this important event. Let's not confuse it, though, with Luke 7, verses 36 through 39, where a harlot came and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. This is a totally separate event not the same event of Luke 7. Where is this taking place? This is taking place in Bethany. Now we're in John 12, in verse 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. He had come to Bethany for Lazarus' funeral. We spent time looking at that in John 11. And here is Lazarus, there in Bethany, at his uh, his friend's home, I have mistakenly said, this was at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This was actually at the home of Simon, a friend of theirs, no, no doubt. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' friend, Simon, we know from Matthew 26 and Mark 14, that this meal took place at the home of Simon, who had been a leper. So Jesus had been in Bethany for Lazarus's, for raising Lazarus from the dead. He had stepped away and gone to Ephraim, no doubt to rest and to prepare and to be with his father and to instruct the disciples and to help prepare them for what was coming. The Passover was near. People were coming to Jerusalem. There was talk about Jesus. The council had met. They had given this command, this resolution. Caiaphas had given his prophecy. And now Jesus comes back to Bethany. He enters the home of Simon, who had been a leper, 
And he meets there with Simon, with his disciples, and with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that is the location. That is the occasion. That is where he is at. We don't know much about Simon. Uh, from what I have read and studied, there doesn't seem to be any relation between the Simon of the, the host of this meal and Judas Iscariot in verse number four, where we read Simon's son. Okay, there doesn't appear to be any relation there between Judas Iscariot and this Simon who is hosting the meal. This Simon is not recorded. The miracle, I'm, I'm assuming, and the commentators, uh, they, they all pretty much agree that somewhere in an unrecorded event, Jesus had healed Simon from his leprosy. That's making an assumption, I realize, but I think it's a, it's a fair assumption. It's a reasonable assumption. Because a leper would not have been publicly hosting a meal. He would have been in a leper colony. He would have been a beggar. He would have been isolated. No doubt he had been healed. Matthew 26, Mark 14. Uh, we understand that he had been a leper. And so there is every indication that Jesus had healed him. And now in thanksgiving, in a return for what Jesus had done for him, he hosts this meal and invites, no doubt, friends of his, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, this is not the Mary Magdalene. This is not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary of Bethany and her friend Martha and Lazarus, who we know were close friends of Jesus. Mary, in this story, in this event, represents worship. Mary is at the feet of Jesus once again. Martha represents in this event work or service for the Lord. Where's Martha? Probably in the kitchen preparing the meal as that was her gift. We don't see Martha in this event criticizing Mary as she did in a previous occasion in Luke chapter number 10 where she criticized Mary for being at the feet of Jesus worshiping and and learning as he taught her. Martha, there's no criticism here of her work, of her service. And then Lazarus, who represents witness. Mary, worship, Martha, work, and Lazarus, witness. And all three of those are important for us as believers. We have a witness like Lazarus, though we have not been raised from the dead and have that kind of testimony like Lazarus did. We have been raised spiritually from the dead, as believers, and we have that testimony, though we have not been physically raised from the dead. Nevertheless, we have a testimony. We spent some time on that last week. Lazarus represents that witness, that testimony. Martha represents that work, that service. We have gifts. We have abilities. God has blessed us with something that we can give back to the Lord in service for him. And again, busyness doesn't make us spiritual, but neither does sitting around and doing nothing and complaining and saying everybody else ought to be doing something and we don't do anything ourselves. Now, there are physical limitations, there are health limitations, there are even gift limitations. You wouldn't want me up here singing a solo. I'd much rather be preaching anyway, but you don't want me singing a solo uh, unless it's a very simple tune like Jesus Loves Me. And then even then you wouldn't find it to be that wonderful. So there are certain gifts and there are certain abilities that obviously we don't have the ability or the giftedness to exercise. But God has given us something 
We talk about the one talent. We talk about the five talents. God has given us something that we can give to the Lord in his service. And Martha, we see that doing that, see her doing that regularly. Serving in the kitchen, no doubt, even as Simon hosts this meal. And then, of course, Mary worshiping at the feet of Jesus, devoted to the Lord. We see here in this, as we've laid a lot of background and set the background in the context, we're going to see here in this event, in John chapter 12, we're going to see a contrast of character. A contrast of character. Let's look, first of all, some more at Mary. First time we saw Mary, you know, the first time we see her in the Gospels is at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. And that's the, the event where Martha is critical of her for sitting there and listening and learning, which Martha would do well to have done more of instead of just always busy. We can, again, glean from that. And the application there is, again, that we have devotion, that we must have worship and devotion, the inside ultimately affects the outside, and we can be busy doing a lot of things outwardly and serving, but we have to nurture the inward. We have to be and then do. And Mary, in a sense, represents that. She, again, is the Mary of Bethany, not Mary Magdalene, not the mother of Jesus. We see her in this chapter, in this event, at the feet of Jesus once again. She had been there also in John 11, in verse 32, when Jesus came. And, of course, Martha, being the energetic, busy person that Martha was, she ran out, and she just had to see Jesus as he's coming down the road. Mary is there. She's more contemplative. She's very devotional in her life. And Mary is once again at the feet of Jesus in verse 3 of John chapter number 12. And what does she do? Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointments. The ointment is spikenard. Now, we don't go down to Bath and Body Works. I don't enjoy going into Bath and Body Works. I will say I'll go in there um, with my wife, and I don't like going in there when it's crowded because you're wall-to-wall people, and they have every scent imaginable, it seems like, and your olfactory senses get overload. We don't go to Bath and Body Works that I know of and get a ointment of spikenard. But we do find in those places and in the cologne and perfume section, we find smelly water, don't we? As sometimes it's referred to in other places around the world. Perfumes, colognes, they're advertised on TV, especially as we get into the Christmas season, and some of them are outrageously expensive. It's ridiculous sometimes, and sometimes it has nothing to do with all of the cost of that perfume. It has everything to do with the label on the bottle and who advertises it for them, right? It's ridiculous. But spikenard was a very, very costly perfume in Bible times. It was a precious ointment. It was an oil derived from the nard plant native to India. 
So just for them to bring it all the way over from India was a, an expensive route and effort to even get it and then to break it down into its chemical components to be this oil that could be used as a special perfume on special occasions. Even used, I know this sounds something kind of odd to us because we have embalming and we give that over to the funeral home and to the mortician. Uh, That's a, a special job for a special person to do and we don't get involved in all that, but we see the results of embalming and we're thankful for it. But the ointments and the perfumes they had to use sometimes for embalming in to, to cover the body because the, the lack of refrigeration, the lack of embalming that we have today in our modern medicine and modern technology, they had to cover up the smell, the decay of the body. So spikenard would sometimes be used in the case of a body, a corpse. It could also be used in other special events. And it was very costly. It was very precious. So it was also pure. It was also pure, which means it was of the rarest proportions. It was the name brand, so to speak. It was the unadulterated oil of spikenard. We buy, especially now with all the inflation, we probably buy a lot more of the store brand, a lot more of the generic. And there are some things we have learned you don't buy the generic of. They just, it doesn't taste as good, it doesn't last as long, it doesn't work as well. And I've joked around in here, there's nobody who can make Honey Nut Cheerios like General Mills. There's nobody who can make Wheaties like General Mills. It's just, you can't find a store brand, a generic, that's the same. We can go on and on with the, the examples. This oil of Spikenard was the name brand. This was not the generic. This wasn't the knockoff version. We, we, we have to understand this was an extremely valuable, costly, precious ointment. And she breaks that box that contained that ointment and she anoints Jesus' head as well as his feet. When we take the three accounts from Matthew, Mark, and from John, and we understand that she broke that box, that flask, which is an alabaster flask, and out came that oil, and she anointed the head of Jesus and his feet. That flask that is mentioned there in verse number 3, this pound of ointment of spikenard, actually we're we're getting that alabaster flask, excuse me, from Matthew 26 and verse number 7. I crossed up the accounts, I apologize. That alabaster flask mentioned in Matthew 26 was a long neck bottle. And even what the ointment of spikenard was kept in was a special kind of marble found in Egypt and sculpted into this special container to keep this expensive perfume. So even the oil of spikenard was not just kept in the clay pots. It wasn't just kept in the average pottery of the day. It was kept in a specially carved flask of marble, a special marble found in Egypt. Again, we speak of the, or we see the container itself and the oil inside, and it raises again 
in our understanding of the sacrifice that Mary makes. The oil itself of extreme value, the container it was found in, this helps us gather enough information that we see just the measure of sacrifice by Mary. But we're not done because Judas, he complains. Verse number five, in our understanding of Mary, we have to continue in the sacrifice, but we see in verse five that this ointment sold for 300 pence. Pence or denarii. Pence and denarii, two terms that we don't know very well, but a denarii or a pence was one day's wages. This ointment, according to Judas, would have sold for 300 denarii. So basically, one year's average salary is what this ointment was worth. Now, I don't know what the, the average salary is of our church body, I'm not trying to get anybody to raise their hand and tell me, okay? I'm not trying to, to find out anything like that, but I did do a little bit of research, and I found that in America, the average income for an American today is $75,000, okay? That's the average salary. So if we just take that, this would be a $75,000 perfume. 300 is the average number of work days for a Jew because of the Sabbath, because of Jewish holidays and Sabbath. So 300 represented one year's salary wages. And if we compared that to America right now, $75,000 is what this perfume would be worth. Now, some of you ladies are thinking, see, if my husband really loved me, and I was really number one priority in his life, then he would be willing to sacrifice a whole year of income for me, right? Some of you ladies might be thinking that today. Some of us men are saying, oh, Pastor Floyd, don't even go there. Believe me, I'm, I'm struggling too. I'm not going to be able to do that either. <laughs> Sorry, Kelly. <laughs> but we're, we're getting the picture. We're, we're getting the understanding of the value here. We read through this, and I've read through this many a time, and I've, I've even taught through uh, the, the book of John before in a Bible class and in a Sunday school class. But just once again, just taking time to, to dwell on this and to think about this and to think about all of my responsibilities and, and obligations as a father and the level of sacrifice that sometimes has to come with being a father and the financial commitments and, and the requirements it gets overwhelming sometimes, and to think that Mary, a woman in Bible times who, by the culture, by the culture, not by biblical teaching, but by the culture, a woman was considered a lesser class, and she has an ointment of spikenard in an expensive alabaster flask worth, by our value, 75 thousand dollars and she breaks the flask and anoints jesus's head and jesus's feet incredible absolutely incredible and we struggle to take up take that wadded up dollar bill and drop it in the offering plate 
We struggle to take one day a week and give it to the Lord. We struggle to take five minutes of our morning or our evening to have devotions and to pray. And Mary took a $75,000 ointment perfume and broke it and washed and anointed Jesus' head and Jesus' feet. She was willing to make a costly sacrifice. She had a heart devoted to Jesus. She was so overwhelmed with her gratitude for Christ saving her. She was so humbled in her complete dependence upon the Lord that she did the job of a slave. It was the slave's job. It was the servant's job to wash the feet of the guests. And not only did she stoop down in humility and wash Jesus' feet and anoint his head, but she did so with the costliest, one of the costliest perfumes, ointments of the day. And it was in humility. It was in no great sacrifice to her in her heart, in her devotion, because Christ had saved her. Christ had raised her brother, Lazarus. She had sat at the feet of Jesus. She had learned from him. And she was overwhelmed. She was humbled. She was completely given and probably even looking ahead as she had learned at the feet of Jesus, recognizing that probably Jesus would not be with them much longer. I think Mary sensed. I I can't help but think that Mary heard some of the rumors around town. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council, the Sanhedrin. Remember, there was this resolution, there was this command. If you know where Jesus is, to tell them. So they were even going to face some measure of pressure meeting there at that table in Simon's house because they were going to know where Jesus is. Were they going to go and tell the authorities? No. But there was some pressure already on them. She knew that there was probably some final days here. And Mary was overwhelmed in her humility and her devotion to her Savior. Here's Mary with her heart full, with a heart of humility and submission, making a sacrifice that would be almost indescribable by our terms today. Again, we struggle with sacrifice of any kind here in spoiled America. I know we're sensing more pressure now financially and economically, 40-year inflation rates and shortages and on and on we could go. We're experiencing things, and I'm not a doomsdayer. I don't want to be a naysayer. We have to be smart. We have to be reasonable. But we've not faced what a lot of people have faced, believers throughout the centuries. And I don't know if persecution is coming and there is a purging of the church. I sense in some way that COVID and the lockdowns and all that has in some ways purged the church. But is there a persecution coming that will purge the church even more to show who really, truly 
loves the Lord and is committed to him. Mary was committed. She was devoted. She had a heart of worship and of reverence. She had her mind on the eternal. She had her mind on that which was going to last. That little box of ointment, as valuable and as precious as it was, it meant nothing when she broke it for her heart of expression of worship and devotion for her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so comfortable in our Christianity. We're so full of our conveniences. We're so casual. Charles Barkley will spend three hours on a Sunday afternoon in a suit and tie talking about basketball. And I'm not saying that everybody has to come in a suit and tie in their formalities to worship. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be legalistic here. Don't misunderstand about what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying the mentality that has become pervasive in our churches is this casual, cost-me-nothing, comfortable, convenient Christianity. And it's costing us. It's costing us eternal value, eternal reward, and eternal souls. Mary came in... Jesus is just six days before the Passover and his crucifixion. And Mary has a heart for what really lasts, for what really matters in in a great costly act of sacrifice. She breaks that box of ointment and pours it on the feet of Jesus and on his head. And again, we're afraid sometimes to be inconvenienced at all for our Lord. We'll be inconvenienced for our recreation. We'll be inconvenienced for our work, which, again, many of these things are good and they're right. We have to provide for our family. We have work to do. We'll give six days to ourselves and get all offended that the Lord might ask for one day when the six days that we spend for ourselves are all by His grace and by his power that we even have the strength to live out those six days and to do that work. It all belongs to him. When we think about it all belongs to him, then the sacrifice really doesn't seem to be a sacrifice at all. And that's the mentality that I see in Mary. It's really not that great of a sacrifice when she measured it to eternity. And as a matter of fact, in Mark 14, in verse number 9, in the parallel accounts, we read that wherever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. That's incredible. That that act of sacrifice, that act of worship, that act of service is put on the same par with where the gospel is preached. Her act of sacrifice and worship would be a memorial to her. It would be a testimony to her. It would be a powerful testimony of sacrifice and worship. But most importantly, it would be a testimony and a memorial to the gospel that saved her and that saves us, undeserving sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mary had her mind on Christ and his sacrifice. She had her mind on the eternal. Are we willing to sacrifice like Mary? Are we willing to give our all for the Lord? 
Are we willing to be that living sacrifice? We know the verses. We memorize them. We can quote them. We can repeat them back. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, your expected service, your simple expected service in return for the great sacrifice that Christ has done for us. And then verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we're too busy conforming ourselves to the will of this world than we are to the will of God. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Where are our priorities? Are our affections set on things above? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? I can't, help but, I, can't, I can't help but also think of David in 2 Samuel chapter 24. David in his pride had taken a census. He wanted to be able to declare how many soldiers, how many people, and he wanted to lift himself up as one of the greatest kings of the earth. The motive was pride, and God brought a judgment. And in order to assuage that judgment, there needed to be a sacrifice. And a man by the name of Aruna offered his threshing floor for that sacrifice. And he was going to give it to David for free. He said, David, you're the king. You can have it to offer your sacrifice. And in 2 Samuel 24, David paid Aruna for the threshing floor. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David understood. If it costs me nothing, then what value is it? What worth is it? Mary, in a contrast of character, were not going to have time to even go to the next. The great contrast between Mary and Judas will come back, Lord willing, next week, and we'll look at Judas. But I encourage us today to once again look at our lives. Are we a Christian that is casual and convenient and complacent? It costs me nothing. I'll wear the Jesus T-shirt I'll put the Jesus bumper sticker on. I'll put the Jesus cross around my neck or hanging on some decoration on the wall. But where is our service and our sacrifice? Our dedication, our love, our obedience, our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength given to the Lord to honor him, to love him, to serve him, to obey him. Christianity, Christianity will not have an impact as salt and light on this world unless we as believers once again have the heart, the humility, and the dedication, the reverence, and the worship of a Mary. Her testimony, her memorial is powerful. It is spoken of to this day around the world, and it speaks to the gospel of Jesus Christ who can save lives save us from our sin and give us a home in heaven, forgiven, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, justified by faith. 
So if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. May today be the day where you sacrifice yourself and trust Christ for forgiveness of your sins and put your faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection and be able to experience what Mary did and give back in gratitude and devotion and humility and service and in reverence for what Christ did for you. May we have the heart of Mary as we go forth from this place today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of Mary, how this sacrifice of a material possession of value speaks to a memorial, a symbol of the burial of your son who would rise again. Death has lost, it. Death hath lost its victory. The grave, Lord, no longer has the sting. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. Lord, may we love you more. May we be willing to go above and beyond and quit thinking of the Christian life as so hard and so difficult when it's our reasonable service as living sacrifices. Lord, may we be renewed in our minds and transformed by your word. And Lord, I pray that you will speak to hearts even now in this, these closing moments as we sing this stanza of this song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may stand uh, to your feet. And Jake is going to come and lead us in one stanza of 607.